Welcome to Parenthood Pals. I'm Caleb Hoyer. I'm Melissa Fight Johnson. And today we have a special guest with us named Shuli Kaywood. Welcome, Shuli. Hi. Hi. I'm so happy to be on here. I've been looking forward to this. How fun. <laughs> <laughs> We've been looking forward to it, too. Um, where are you joining us today, Shuli? I'm actually in Blowing Rock, North Carolina. It's in the mountains and it's cool, which is very Ooh. nice. That sounds great. I love that. So this is technically our first guest where we haven't met in person. And so that's so interesting. But Shuli and I were just talking about how we feel like we know each other in person. I think we met from the Facebook writers group, Publication Blitz. <laughs> I got invited, someone I went to school with knows Melissa in person and I know this school person in person. And she <laughs> invited me to this Facebook group and she was actually not Melissa, but this other person was the only person I knew in this Facebook group, I think. And um, Melissa's really active in this writers group. You, you can tell a lot about Melissa's personality, I think, through Facebook. She's very kind posts. They're just very generous. And so I, I, as I got to see her posts, I immediately knew that I would like her. So, <laughs> so that was a few years ago. And so we've been on this group for a while now. And then this summer, I held a writing workshop and I begged her to be a part of it because I knew she'd be <laughs> a great part of it. And she was. And so we got to see each other in Zoom for a whole week um, every day. And I got to know her a lot better through that. And that was a wonderful workshop. And it actually made me feel so much better. Really, it was because of that workshop that I thought, okay, I think I can do this. I think I can teach online and, and have it be really effective because Shuli's class was so effective. It was wonderful. Well, good. Well, I was really happy to have you be a part of it. You were a huge part of it. So thank you. Oh, yeah, thank you. We also like to ask what your history with the show Parenthood is. I have actually seen the whole series. I really enjoyed it. I didn't see it when it was, you know, out alive or whatever on television. I saw it after the fact, but now it's been a while since I've seen it. So I had to rewatch the episode we're talking about <laughs> a couple of times <laughs> to remind me, you know, the details of it. But I loved the whole series, really, really loved. And I could relate to different characters for different reasons, which was nice. Oh, that is nice. I love that. Well, our last thing that we always ask guests is to tell us about their team, like Team Kaywood, you know? Well, I grew up with uh, mom and dad who stayed married and a sister. So we were a unit of four and, the four and we had a dog who I grew up with from four to 17. So I considered her part of our pack and <laughs> she was a German shepherd. But anyway, the four of us are my sister, my parents and I are still extremely close. We talk just about every day on the phone. And then right now, my team is McKee Kaywood. I, my husband is Preston McKee, and I'm Shuli Kaywood, and then we have one dog. And that's our, our whole team, team of three. Well, we're very happy to have you here. Today, we're discussing Parenthood Season 1, Episode 9, Perchance to Dream. It was written by Becky Hartman Edwards and directed by Lawrence Trilling, and it originally aired on April 27th, 2010. And here is the synopsis from NBC. Adam has his hands full when Christina goes back to work and leaves him with Max and Hattie for the weekend. Along with taking care of his own kids, Adam gives Drew girl advice when a school dance approaches. Sarah tries to get Amber excited about college by taking her to an event on campus and unexpectedly runs into an ex. Meanwhile, Julia attempts to teach Sydney a lesson about lying, and Crosby takes Jasmine on a real date without Jabbar. I did think we would start with the writing thread of this episode, that plot line, 
which uh, really concerns Sarah and Amber. The first thing I thought about that is that that opening scene with the Holt family, I guess I would call them, Sarah and Amber and Drew, their overlapping dialogue in that scene really feels like it doesn't happen on any show except Parenthood. That is yeah. a classic Parenthood. And then you you just catch random bits of the conversation <laughs> and different bits each time you watch it. Like Sarah saying, you don't need both livers anyway. <laughs> I had to Google, do we have more than one liver? <laughs> you just have one. Or like her saying, paging Dr. Braverman, and you hear Amber say after the fact, it would be Dr. Holt, by the way. <laughs> Stuff like that. Do you think that Lauren Graham forgot that Amber's character's last name isn't Braverman when she said paging Dr. Braverman? And they know. just left it in. Do you think that might be it? And that's because I didn't even notice that Amber corrected her and said it would be Dr. Holt. That's I hilarious. didn't either. But my guess is that she, cons- you know, like at least my mother considers us her kids ah. <laughs> more so than my dad's. <laughs> even though it's the same. <laughs> so maybe she says like these are more my kids. You know? Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot more than Lauren Graham made a mistake and they just went with it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, my favorite little aspect of that whole scene was, um, have you guys ever seen the movie Lady Bird? Uh-huh. I loved Lady Bird. I finally hit it in this episode. I'm like, that's who they remind me of. Um, Sarah and Amber remind me a little bit of the mother mm. and daughter in Lady Bird. And I think it's because they were just bickering about, you know, the college tour and I don't want to do it. I'm not going to college. That's not even happening. And then all of a sudden they're both like, oh, Drew, this looks so cute, doesn't it? Yeah, it's cute. And it just, <laughs> it felt very much like Lady Bird, even though this scene came first. So I like to think Lady Bird um, copied off of Parenthood, but you know, that's a, that's a scandalous <laughs> tale for another time. <laughs> well, I love their dynamic as mother and daughter because they, I think are a lot alike and then also have this tension of, well, they get on each other's nerves, but there's so much that they have alike that there's this huge love between them, but also a little bit of, I not even know hate, but dislike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, she takes Amber to work this party at Berkeley with her and Jim. We've been wondering what's the deal with him. And in their first scene in this episode, I got the impression that it was like they never really broke up or really got back together and that maybe she like kind of ghosted him a little bit. Because I think he said something about like, I haven't heard from you or I've been hoping I would. Since the last time. Yeah. And it's like, did she just totally ignore him? Maybe it's because she tried to break up with them at the coffee shop and then someone wrote bitch on her car and it didn't go well. And then she... um, she just should have like let sleeping dogs lie. Yeah, she should have gone go to his you know, no. house of lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> well, lo and behold, he's the guest of honor, award-winning poet. And I wrote in all caps in my notes, I can't wait to hear these writers' <laughs> thoughts on Jim's poem. This is called Orchid Blooming. Parched ground welcomes the storm. Moist Wet petals slowly open, beckoning the thunder, yearning, shuddering, electric lightning. The pink orchid blooms. This about flowers, right? The cloud. I think it might be about your vag. Is ready to spray its love. (laughs) 
<laughs> I actually wrote those. I think it might be about your vag on my notebook. Uh, I <laughs> love that's probably my favorite line of the whole episode. It's fantastic. Me line. too. <laughs> Me three. It's so I good. remembered that line years later. It's like, oh, this is the episode where she says, I think it's about your vag. <laughs> but so we've learned in previous episodes that Jim has had a poem published in the New Yorker. I oh am God. not a poet. But I, I'm guessing this is not what one would think of as New Yorker level poetry, but I'll defer to the writers. I would say absolutely not. Oh. I hope not. Yeah. I know if, if this is New Yorker level poetry, I should really give myself a confidence boost and start submitting there um, because <laughs> I think I've got a shot if Jim has a shot. Why didn't you care for the poem? You know, it was just too obvious to me, I guess. Yeah. You know, there was nothing yeah. subtle about it. No. And I, I don't know. There was something. I think that writing like about the erotic is kind of a tricky thing to do, to do it in a way that's compelling, you know, that's not, like you said, obvious and just kind of cringy, as my students would say. And so I'm, I'm curious, like, what could he have written, you know, that would have been the same idea, but just less, I mean, like, first of all, a a flower opening feels like the biggest cliche in the world. Um, That's exactly right. Yeah. It's a very, it's overused, very cliche. Also, I hadn't even thought about it this deeply, but one of the things that I think we were meant to like about Jim is that I don't think what he liked most about Sarah was her vag. You know, I think (laughs) that he saw beauty in her that was deeper than that. Yeah. It might have been more affecting if he had written obviously about her, but in a less superficial way. Yeah, I think that's right. For me, the poem that he wrote felt um, that he was making her in the poem, at least like the vulnerable one who's grateful and opening up. And so it felt like kind of like the power shifted, like maybe he now felt like he had the power in the relationship the relationship I say in quotes, because I don't think she thought she'd think she's in a relationship, whatever they are. So to me, it felt like he was making her kind of small and vulnerable. That's how I read the poem. Now I didn't, you know, write it down line by line, but it just felt kind of like the, the flower welcomes and is, you know, so like, he didn't use these words, but so grateful. (laughs) No, that's absolutely it. Absolutely. It and to, to have just met her daughter and to not rethink reading that poem, too, even if he'd written it, to not be like, you know what, I'm going to move that one. I'm, I'm going to shuffle some things around, read something else. I don't want to make her uncomfortable. It just, I don't know. I liked Jim before this episode, but I think in this episode, I really didn't because all these reasons. And I completely agree. If someone were to write a poem about me, I would certainly not want it to be about that um, because she could be anyone, you know, like that could be anyone's vagina. That's true. That's absolutely true. Well, and even though I've been so curious as to where Jim is and what the status of their relationship is and whatnot, the fact that he says he's titled his next collection, the one that got away twice makes me judge him Perhaps unfairly, but like, oh, God, Jim, you're, are you pining so desperately for this person who you, you went out with once? And like, yeah, maybe you had a crush on her since high school, but then you didn't see her for 20 years. And then you like slept with her once and you're in love. I, 
and just for him to be seemingly so hung up on it, I was like, oh, that's a little pathetic, Jim. <laughs> Have some self-respect. <laughs> well, you know, it, it does make me think, like, what do I tend to write my poems about? You know, surely what do you tend to write about? Uh, for me, it's about my life as it actually exists, you know? And so I, I write a lot about, you know, my dad who passed away and my relationship with my mother, my relationship with my husband quite a bit. And I'll write a poem here or there about like an ex. I can't imagine devoting an entire book, but I don't mean to sound judgmental of people who do. I think it could make sense if you had like a really traumatic relationship to, to write your way out of that. Or if you had significant relationships that shaped who you are in the core. And maybe that's what Sarah was to Jim. Like maybe she shaped him more than we see, but all we get is one random sex poem. So it just seems like he's a guy who liked having sex with a beautiful girl, um, beautiful woman. I think that he, um, I agree with you about what I write about and, and I have written about exes many times, but it's when they've had a really serious relationship. But I think for Jim, he is in love with an idea of her. So I think mm. he's built this whole story about who she is. And so he thinks he knows her and he thinks he understands her, but he doesn't. And I've known people who've done that, you know, who yeah. I've probably done it. I, I'm sure I have where I have an idea of someone and I've created this whole story. And until I get to know them better, I think this story is true. And so I think he's in love with an idea of her, not her. Yeah. She's catty to his Benji. <gasps> oh, oh, man. <laughs> well, you know. I love how you just said that so much because absolutely that's what it is. And the thing is, the story that Jim told her in the pilot about her throwing the ring, you know, at him and everything, I'm like, those are the kinds of specific details that would make for a really good poem. Um, you know, show us that you know her. And then I think maybe she'd be hearing that poem with her daughter and maybe feel differently about him. Like, wow, he really knew me. And he was really good to me. I, I blew it. No one's going to listen to that vag poem and think I blew it. <laughs> Jim's poem really reminded me of this character that Vanessa Bayer played on SNL of a poetry teacher. Why don't I start us off with a poem that I wrote, okay? All right, this is called Snowy Day. Snowflakes drift on my nose and in my ears. Wet, white, and beautiful. Did an angel sneeze? Lost in the glistening mounds of snow. Crunch, crisp, captivating. Okay, now who's written a poem about where they would rather be? <laughs> I don't remember that SNL episode, but I wish I did. Um, oh my God, that, that right there brings me to a bigger point about poetry. It makes me so happy that we have another poet in here because I want to hear somebody else's um, thoughts on this as well. The idea of like, have you ever been embarrassed to tell people you're a poet because of the image people conjure when they think of poet or is it just me? Um, cause it, it might not be you. It would be awesome if it wasn't, you know, cause I, I don't want to be embarrassed, but sometimes I am cause people think of Jim's poem and they think of that Vanessa Bayer poem. That is so funny. I, I have never been embarrassed, but good for you. <laughs> that's really interesting. Maybe I just wasn't thinking about how they might see me. <laughs> no, you're a wonderful poet, but and I think I'm good too. So it's not about that. But you know what I mean? It's like before people hear or read your work, 
I feel like people who don't write poetry maybe have all these connotations in their head about what that looks like. And I feel like even the writers of a successful TV show had an idea in their head of what poetry looked like. And that's what they put on this episode. And I don't think it's really resembling what serious poets do. And I worry that that's what people see. <laughs> you know, I, I I don't know. That could be true. I I definitely think that when I tell people I write poetry that I know that they're thinking of poetry that is, unless they're a writer. Like if I tell you and Caleb, that's one thing. But if I tell someone who doesn't read any poetry, then I already know that they're going to have a preconceived notion probably of what it's like. And it's sort of abstract, not understandable. That I'm fully aware of when I say those words. I guess I wouldn't say I'm embarrassed, but I also think, oh, they're not going to get what I do at all. I get told a lot, Yours doesn't rhyme. Do you ever? <laughs> I get that a lot from people who don't really read or write poetry. I've gotten that a few times, and it always is funny <laughs> to me. But I mean, I feel like there are a couple reasons for that misconception. One, I think, is a lack of education about the arts in general. You know, I don't know if people have read a lot of poetry that doesn't rhyme yeah. and come to understand, like, that's a lot of poetry <laughs> and a lot of good poetry <laughs> doesn't rhyme. And then also I think a lot of the arts are things that some people can excel at without necessarily a lot of training themselves. Like I remember you, Melissa, sharing your opinion of a like very successful poet who I think started on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Instagram. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, she has probably, not to rub this in your face, but, you know, <laughs> no, she's probably no. had more commercial success as a poet than you, even though I think anyone who knows anything about poetry would look at your work side by side and proclaim you the far better poet. And there's certainly, you know, in my field, I hear people who are songwriters in air quotes <laughs> all the time who like clearly just kind of noodle around on the piano and then they put words to it and they're like, look, I wrote a song. And the hard part is that sometimes people who do that end up writing really great songs, mm. but a lot of times it's garbage <laughs> and I'm <laughs> supposed to be like, yeah, look, we're the same. It's like, we are not the same. <laughs> I really learned how to do this. It makes you wonder what's appreciated in our society. I do a whole lesson on that poet that you were talking about um, with my AP students. And I think it's a fascinating lesson because that poet I've, I've read before has like outsold Homer, like is, is oh hands down the most famous poet writing today, I think. And I, I am a, I'm really against taste shaming. So I don't want to like make fun of people who are into something, especially when a lot of those people are like teenage girls. My students, you know, often love her. And I think sometimes it's because they aren't familiar with a lot of other types of contemporary poetry. This might be their only view of it. And if it's their gateway into reading other kinds of poetry, I really think it's a wonderful thing. But often it's not. Often it just defines everything they see about poetry. And a lot of times they're very vague, abstract, you know, not very personal because the whole idea of those poems is that they could apply to anyone, anyone's experiences. And so that's why a lot of students will sometimes say it resonates because you can just insert their story there. But really the best poetry is personal and that makes it universal. So anyway, that's me kind of going off for a bit, but it, it is an interesting thing. You're absolutely right. People love 
novels and people love music, but I don't know that poetry is something that's widely read by non-poets. And so I think there are a lot of misconceptions about the fact that it's a craft, you know, it's something that you study and that you can be bad at and then get good at. When I started, I was terrible. (laughs) I could quote the first poem I ever wrote and it was... Um, like a spinning in the dark swirl of pain poem. It was just awful. And I had to learn how to write. I also think there's an element of looking down on expertise in our Mm. culture. It's something that has always bugged me when I see movies or TV shows about the arts Because the narrative that they often seem to depict is that someone who's trained their whole life and really worked on their technique is kind of a soulless robot. And really, it's this diamond in the rough who doesn't even know that they're talented that has all the talent. So it's like on Glee, you're supposed to think (laughs) that the girl who's obsessed with show choir is soulless and yeah she maybe she's good but there's no heart in it but it's that football player singing in the shower he's the one who's really good or on the show rise which was another jason kadem's show it was like no not the girl who's wanted to do musical theater her whole life it's the athlete who didn't know he had that skill he's great and the girl who works at the diner waiting tables now i'm not saying you might not find talent in those areas at all because that's true i just think it there's this perception that that's a better story. Someone who is maybe a little rough, but they're really great. And that people who've studied and worked, that's boring for them to be good. When in reality, I'm like, it's the person who's trained who's going to be the best 99% of the time. That's very true. You have to put in work. It's not just a, a natural talent. There maybe is an aptitude, but you have to develop that. But I think people want to believe the natural talent because then they think I can do whatever because I'll just have the gift and it'll come easy. And, you know, even though like, Melissa, you're a wonderful writer. I know it takes work. It is not just, oh, I'm already good. And so I can just, you know, (laughs) put a poem on the page and, you know, it's going to be great. I mean, it takes so much work to get better, even when you have natural talent. Thank you. I think you're wonderful too. But I also want to say that, I don't even think that studying something has to be so expensive or classist or anything like that. You know, when a lot of my students tell me that they're interested in writing poetry, but like maybe not as a career, maybe they don't want to go to college and, you know, study it. I just tell them to read widely. You know, I tell them magazines that I love, journals that I love, you know, poets that I love. And and I'm just like, just read a lot because a lot of people... I don't know if this is true with with other fields like music, but I I do find it interesting how many people want to write, but they don't want to read. You know, they just want the glory, I guess, but they don't want to. So anyway, I I do think that's interesting. And I wonder what Jim, I mean, just to bring it back to parenthood, I I do wonder like what his backstory is, because we do see that he works in like a coffee shop, which is totally great, you know, but I wonder, does he read poetry? Does he, you know, how did he get in the New Yorker? Now I want to know Jim's whole story. Well, and there's even, you know, like you say, (laughs) you don't have to be of a certain class just to read certain magazines and I think they show that with Sarah when she's Mm. commenting on the piece in McSweeney's it's like oh my gosh can you believe the caterer reads McSweeney's (laughs) and it's like yeah because anyone can read it all you have to do is read it (laughs) (laughs) and you know it's interesting because she does kind of have this um you know lack of self-confidence that seems to stem from the the formal education you know but she is just as smart as everyone else in her family who did go to fancy schools so i that yeah that was such an interesting way for that episode to end i thought the idea that it was 
supposed to be about Amber and what was going to happen to her future. But then it kind of really is about Sarah and what's going to happen in her future. She, she definitely compares herself to her sister a lot. So if you're doing the comparing, then you have a sister who has, you know, not only gotten her undergraduate, but gone to law school and is extremely smart and good at what she does. And so that's, that's a really high bar for anyone. Well, after the party, Sarah and Amber are driving home in their Nissan, which, you know, if we had any question previously about whether Nissan was a paid sponsor, Parenthood, I think that shot the, the logo on the hood of their car was a clue. Also a clue was this promo for the series premiere that I found. I'm Peter Krause. And I'm Lauren Graham. Welcome to the premiere of Parenthood, brought to you tonight with limited commercial interruption by Nissan. Parenthood is about families who love each other, fight with one another, help each other, and sometimes drive each other crazy. On behalf of the cast and crew, we'd like to thank Nissan for their support. Please enjoy the premiere. I feel vindicated. Mystery last episode, Yeah, last episode I was like, Nissan is sponsoring this. I just know it. And then in this episode it was like, Nissan. <laughs> <laughs> we love the show, though. So thanks, Nissan. And thanks, if you'd Nissan. like to sponsor Parenthood Pals, you can reach us at parenthoodpals.com. <laughs> I don't have a car. <laughs> Just putting that out there. But anyway, here's what they actually discuss in that Nissan ride home. I can't get over it. Jim Kaczynski, published author. He used to copy off me in 10th grade. <laughs> That's cool. Writing a bunch of poems about a... Big loser getting laid by a hot lady. You know what? That's not nice. He's not a loser. He's he's such a special guy. He might not be, you know, my soulmate, but he's, he's talented. I guess I was probably just grossed out that I had to hear, like, 15 billion poems about my mother's you know, it's not the point. But the point is, this is a guy who read Dylan Thomas in, in high school and was inspired and then followed his dream. And, and look at what he's achieved, you know? I mean, that's what I want for you, you know? That's why I brought you to this school. You, you just can't give up on yourself. I mean, that's living proof. You just can't, you can't give up on yourself. You know, I love Dylan Thomas's vagina poems so much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's what Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night is actually about. Can we all agree? <laughs> gosh that's all I have that's <laughs> does anybody have any deep thoughts about that scene I just thought that their Sarah's attitude towards Jim is so mature and so nice I thought which I think is maybe why I spent so much time fixating on the poem as I think that we are supposed to think he's genuinely talented and then I thought the one example of his work was kind of comically untalented <laughs> that it in a way undermined the point that I think they were trying to make. But I still thought the payoff of the storyline was really good in that it's true that you can't give up on yourself. And the way that Amber then brings that back around to Sarah, Sarah, who obviously has some taste in this mm -hmm. area and an inner intellectual life of, you know, appreciating things like this. And, and yet she's kind of just decided, well, I'm going to work in a bar and that's all I can do. Yeah. And that's not true. 
Well, I was thinking about what you said about the poem not being good. And so I don't know whether the show intended it for to be a good poem or, or not, but let's assume for a moment that it is like how we're hearing it, where it wasn't supposed to be a good poem. But I can imagine that if you are feeling, not you, Kayla, but you, Sarah, you are feeling, (laughs) one is feeling less than because she's put that on herself. She's uh, insecure about not having gone to college or not finished college. And you hear a poem that's bad, but then you say to yourself, but this person's been in the New Yorker and everybody else loves this. It's like the facade. So even though she may know really inside that it's a terrible poem and he's a terrible poet, it's like, but the the public thinks he's wonderful. And so you sort of fall into, I mean, I've fallen into that where it's like, well, everybody around me thinks this person's good. So I must be missing something. So, you know, I might elevate someone where if I was just left to my own devices, I would think, no, this person is at this level, but you start to believe everybody around you, just like you believe what people say about you. You know, when people tell you you're not good enough, you sort of, and I'm not saying that Sarah has been told that, she probably just tells herself that, but I think you can start to believe what you see around you, you know? It's like the emperor has no clothes, you know? Yeah. You start to believe it. So maybe she's just fallen into believing, you know, even though she may not think this poem is good, it might've just brought up all this stuff about her to make her feel less than, so she's putting him up higher. That's a very good point. And- I feel like that's really, yeah, easy to do. Um, sometimes something gets celebrated and, and you're not sure why. And, and then, you know, some of the best musicians I've ever heard have been in like house concerts, like living rooms, you know, it's just way more beautiful than anything I hear on like radio. And it's just, that's interesting too. Cause I think Sarah is incredibly special and talented, but she's just never really broken through anything. And I think it's, I mean, Melissa, you just touched on this a little bit ago, but I think there is also an idea, especially in the creative arts, like an all or nothing mentality. Like if I'm going to be a poet, either I have to be getting published in the New Yorker or I need to not be writing poetry at all. There is no in between. Mm. Or like musicians, either I'm world famous and have a record deal or I need to put the guitar down. There's so many levels in between You know, I went to school with so many performers who then gave up performing. And I think all of them are happier with their lives now rather than if they were still just struggling to make it what they thought making it was. And a lot of them, they still sing. They just don't sing perhaps professionally or they don't sing all the time, but they sing for their own enjoyment. If it brings you happiness... And you've worked so hard to be good at it, share it. And that's not, that's not a failure. I love that. And, you know, that really resonates. Uh, You know, a lot of my friends have been in the New Yorker. They have like incredible bios that I can't think about for too long or (laughs) I get very uh, insecure, you know, happy for them. And, you know, some of these friends have PhDs and MFAs and they were willing to travel for writing. You know, they were willing to go to different colleges and move wherever they could get into a PhD program or wherever they could get a tenure track teaching position, you know. And I used to really downplay my writing. I called it a hobby in my bio for a long time. I thought because I was a high school teacher and not a professor that I wasn't like 
quote unquote real. Uh, even I have a book, but it's a very small press. And even though I, they were so kind and I loved them so much, I thought, well, you know. So I always found ways of downplaying any success I might have. I think people do that all the time. And I think that's a really good point that you brought up, Caleb, because none of us are probably going to be as famous or successful as we might have dreamed or hoped. And for many of us, like, I actually would not want that now. Uh, when I started, I think that was my benchmark of like success. And then eventually I'm like, oh, that's that's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> and so you have to like figure out what is my new reason for writing. And I, I've heard before that you have to love the process more than the product. You know, you have to, you have to love just sitting alone in your house or a coffee shop, just putting pen to paper. And that has to mean more than where you've been published. I agree. It's about doing it for the joy of it. And so I think Sarah's got to find her way of what's going to make her happy and what's going to be her version of success that isn't what she thinks other people want her to be and taking away other people's expectations of what she quote should achieve. Yeah. And it's funny now that we're discussing this, it makes me curious to know what Sarah's passions were uh, perhaps before she felt boxed in by motherhood or her troubled spouse or whatever. I mean, we've seen a little bit of an artistic mm -hmm. side to her with her design. Yeah. You know, then in her interview, she was downplaying it. Oh, it's just for my ex-husband's band. You know, I was just mm -hmm. on the side. I was doing it. But yeah. the guy thought it was really good. And, you know, it is a shame. Yeah, that job didn't work out. But that doesn't mean something couldn't work out. Or do you just like making art for its own sake? Then do that and be happy with it and earn your paycheck at the bar and take care of your family that way. And right. she puts so much pressure on herself. She does. Yeah. Well, that's a great point. Like how many people can support themselves financially through artistic means? I mean, <laughs> Caleb, you do that. That's amazing. I used um, to. <laughs> <laughs> Pandemic. Um, but, you know, I, I would never be able to support myself being a poet. Being a high school teacher is luckily something I love just as much in some ways more than writing. Um, but, yeah, that's that's a really interesting thing. It's like to what extent should you pursue something just for the joy of it? And to what extent are you trying to actually get a career in that field? Right. And I don't know if she's so much looking at the benchmark of art, because I don't know how much she's invested in doing graphic design. But I think that I don't have children, but I can imagine that if I had children to support, and I had to move back into my parents house in order to basically survive, that's a hard place to be coming from, you know, and yeah. it would be really hard to see your siblings. I mean, that's who you're going to most likely your either your closest friends or your siblings going to compare yourself to it's who you see around you. Now, I can imagine that's just a struggle to be comparing herself to them and wanting to be in her own place and be able to support her own kids, you know, without the help of her parents at her age. That's tough. So she's got a lot coming at her. I really feel for her and can relate to her. But I and I moved back into to my parents' house in my 20s when I had to. But I didn't have children either. You know, I think that's another whole level of responsibility that I can imagine, but I have never experienced. But it's tough, I'm sure. It is also interesting to connect that Sarah's motivation in this episode was trying to steer Amber towards some ambition for her own future in there. And obviously, Amber realizes that's a lesson Sarah would do well to learn as well. Um, but just hearing you talk about it now, it seems like on some level, I think Sarah must have known that already because that's why she so badly wanted Amber not to give mm. up on herself. That there's mm -hmm. a, a sense of you know, I kind of gave up on myself and I wish I hadn't. 
And I don't want you to make the same mistakes I did. I just think their relationship is so fascinating and it's so rich. And I can't help but compare it to Gilmore Girls, which I'm not sure is fair because they're really (laughs) different shows in so many ways. But that mother-daughter relationship, they just had this like outrageous chemistry. They were always in sync. And that obviously has its own rewards. But this relationship being more contentious and sometimes they're at each other's throats and then other times they seem really simpatico. That has its own rewards. Well, and I also think that this is maybe weird. I actually think it's healthier. I think it's healthy to have some conflict, you know, and and to not just be best friends. You know, I, I don't know if it's always so healthy to be like totally best friends with with a parent. Well, let's move on to Crosby's story in this episode, which I felt like was kind of the smallest of the stories happening in this episode. And yet there is a huge development. He and Jasmine go on a date and sleep together. I would say for the first time, except obviously it's not the very first time ever in history. (laughs) The first note I had about that was that their kiss at the beginning of the episode, I thought was really sweet. I thought it felt really natural to me. And I may have said this in an earlier episode. I can't remember, but I wonder if Crosby's feelings for Jasmine are sort of like transference that a patient feels for their therapist. His life is changing because of Jabbar's presence in it. And Jasmine is just kind of the adult symbol of all of that new love he's feeling. And I do wonder a little bit, like, do you really love her or are you just full of love now and she's there? I sort of saw this as... (laughs) This is not going to sound good, but like if Crosby has been focused on, you know, responsibility recently, you know, with a child, and then I sort of thought of him as sort of being like, well, you know, I'm interested in dating. Like, well, who's around? Well, there she is. And of course she's gorgeous and smart and, you know, everything else. So it's like, well, she's available. So I sort and, you know, he says he wants to go out, but he doesn't want to have the kid there. And he says it nicely, but it is sort of funny. You know, here's this new child in his life, but he wants, you know, her alone and to not deal with a child. Kind of like going back to what his life was like. Like, I want to just have a kid-free night. Obviously, that's what he thought he wanted. But then their date wasn't very good until Jabbar became a part of it. That's true. Very you know, true. he he specifically told his brother that he wanted to know what it would be like, you know, to date her again if Jabbar were kind of away for the night. And then it turns out they sort of need Jabbar to work. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's okay. But as, you know, someone who's married with no children, I find that fascinating because, um, you know, I wonder how many people, you know, the kid is kind of the glue that holds them together. It's their biggest shared interest. It's, you know, I, I don't know. I liked seeing that part of him because like I said a minute ago, that he's sort of wanting to be back to his old self for a night, you know, where he's not thinking about a kid. And then in a way he sort of realizes, you know, when they have to go back to the house, they are interacting with their child and they're both really happy and he's really happy. It's sort of like, almost like he doesn't realize he's gone to a different level of responsibility um, in his own life until that moment, maybe. Maybe that's thinking a little too deeply about all of it. I don't know impossible on this podcast (laughs) well and slightly in his defense i think he does say he wants the kid free night to explore this exact issue like am i really in love with her or am i in love with her because you know as he says i watched the video of my son coming out of her insides 
a huge mistake for you. Yeah. Yeah. Huge mistake. Yeah. No man should have to witness that unprepared, least of all you. It's extreme. Yeah. You think you're going to recover? Does it recover? Yeah. Yeah, it does. In time. So Christina is... Pop, 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 pop. So many vag... <laughs> vag talk aside, that would have a big impact on how you would see the mother of your child. I mean, even though he's an adult, he's not stupid. He knows what she did in order to birth him. But to actually watch it, and you know, when we saw the look on his face and what an impact that had on him to see what she did, I think it makes sense that he's questioning, am I just bowled over with emotion? Or do Ooh. I actually sense a connection here? Maybe if we remove Jabbar, I can get a clearer picture. But then Melissa, as you point out, if he should take away anything from this episode, it would be that, oh, things are better when Jabbar is around. Mm-hmm. But then I think that brings up an even larger question of, so does that mean he doesn't love Jasmine just on her own terms, but that he loves her in terms of where she fits in in the family? And then is that even a bad thing? Because Jabbar's not going anywhere. Right you know, now. if he dates Jasmine, Jabbar comes with her. It's package deal. Does it even matter if you love her? I mean, now that I'm saying it, yes, I think, of course, it does. <laughs> but well, but yeah, no, that's this is interesting to explore because. I feel like what we could take from this episode is one of two things. One of them is that actually Jasmine and Crosby are not a great couple on their own and they need, you know, they need Jabbar to work. But then the other one might be you can't pretend like you can't just go on a date and be kid free. Even if he doesn't happen to be with you, he's he's with you. And so. I think we're supposed to take the second one, that they can work. You just, you can't look at it like we're dating five years ago. And maybe that's what they were trying to do, you know, eating pasta and drinking wine and being maybe the sort of carefree people they were before Jabbar existed. Yeah, and I feel like that's what Crosby was sort of going for for that night. Because, you know, he's had this, this life that he loved. I mean, he didn't seem unhappy not getting married and not settling down. And so I feel like he was kind of almost wanting to relive that for a night in some ways. And- I love that they work together, you know, to deal with the Jabbar situation at the house when he needs to poop. And in a way, I feel like they, I think Jasmine knew all along, but I think he sees this dynamic that they have working together as parents and it makes him fall even harder for her and also probably see himself in a different light, maybe subconsciously. Mm. I don't know that he's consciously thinking all this stuff, but it's sort of like, yeah, I can do this. And I'm in love with these people who have come into Mm. my life. Yeah. I think that's really well put. And that, you know, he's growing so much and that he was trying to evaluate Jasmine on the only romantic terms that he knew. Right. And I think the lesson he learns in this episode is I love her on a different level, a level yes. I didn't know existed. Uh, I had a few, <laughs> few like superficial observations about them. <laughs> One was that I really like, especially in the scene where he returns the sock to Jasmine, I really love Jasmine's wardrobe. <laughs> Because I think if you were like the costume designer for this show and you had someone as beautiful as Joy Bryant, someone who was a extremely successful model, it would be so tempting to just dress her up like a doll, <laughs> you know, just how beautiful can we make her? Uh, but she's a dancer and she's a single mom and she's not wealthy And that's how, to me, it looks like she dresses. She Mm -hmm. dresses like a dancer would. You know, my best friend here in New York is like a dancer and a dance teacher. And 
that's exactly what she wears. The loose layers and the fuzzy boots and sweats. And, <laughs> you know, you're dancing for comfort. You're dressing for comfort. You're dressing for your job. I just like, I thought it was a nice detail that really did reveal her character. And then also when they were singing to Jabbar while he was pooping, I thought that Crosby, for someone who works with professional musicians, he seemed shockingly tone deaf to me. <laughs> he was just not, Jasmine and Jabbar were like, had agreed on a key with each other. And then Crosby was just <laughs> floating around them in no man's land. Like, Maybe that's why he had to resort to changing the lyrics and just going with humor. <laughs> I, I guess. All I could think is, would this help someone poop? You know, like if you're just singing, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's how it works, but. I think he was nervous, you know. Yeah, I think you're right. Around. <laughs> I did like when Crosby said, Aunt Julia's is a great place to go. <laughs> <laughs> it, it probably is. It's a huge house. <laughs> so if we are going with the idea that Crosby and Jasmine may have some real chemistry as a couple, my question to you is, is that a good thing to pursue at this time when Crosby is still so new to parenting? I mean, I'm not a parent, but I would say take it slow. <laughs> it's interesting because I think, yeah, from a parenting perspective, I think, yeah, take take it slow. I was kind of surprised the first time I watched these episodes that the show went there just because so often shows put off putting people together as long as they possibly can. You know, um, speaking of Gilmore Girls, Lorelai and Luke don't have their first kiss until the finale of season four. Sam and Diane, how long did that take? You know, it's just like, isn't that the thing? And so it's interesting for it to be just really still midway through, I guess towards the end, but midway through season one and they're already going there. That's not the same thing as should the people, Crosby and Jasmine, wait, you know, but I was more focused on should the writers wait? I, I, so I don't know. That's interesting. And they are so cute. Well, I thought of something in the morning after they slept together and Crosby like kisses her and says, that was fun. If I were a single mom and I just slept with the father of my child for the first time in like five years, Maybe I would want to be told that was fun, but maybe I would want something a little bit more like, you know, that that was wonderful or that was meaningful. Or that was special. She didn't seem happy. <laughs> I was trying to figure that out because I don't want to be too like stereotypical, like girls like emotion and boys just like sex. I don't think that's true. I don't mean to reduce it to that, but just considering the situation they're in, I wondered if that was fun is what she was shooting for. <laughs> She seemed, um, when he left, because I remember, because I've watched it twice in the last two weeks, um, <laughs> and I remember the first time being sort of a little bit surprised at her reaction. And I wondered if it wasn't about emotion, but it was about, well, it could be about emotion. She seemed to want something other than what he gave her. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure what it was. I wasn't sure if, you know, she said, I need to stay here or I need to not arrive at the same time so Jabbar isn't confused. It could be that she wanted Crosby to go, no, it's fine. You know, we're going to, I don't know what she wanted, but she, to me, her expression was clearly, I want something other than what you're doing, Crosby. But I didn't know what that was. That's interesting. Caleb, did you get any sense of that or? or I was mostly fixated on the fact that Crosby was really concerned with being on time and Jasmine was like, yeah, so we're a little late. It yeah. seemed to me a, like a little bit of role reversal. It's like, well, Jasmine's the responsible one, and Crosby is the one I would expect to be like, well, if we're late, we're late. Maybe when they slept together, they did a Freaky Friday. <laughs> That's kind of what I thought. 
<laughs> or maybe she's wondering why he's suddenly being different. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, does he want to get out of here really fast? Does he not want to stay in bed longer? What does this mean? Is he trying to run away? She could have not understood it. He does blame it on Julia. He says, if I'm late, she'll keep Jabbar hostage right. to teach me a lesson, which I thought it may have been a line Although knowing Julia, I think it might also be exactly what she'll do. (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't sure how to read that whole thing. I'm glad we're unpacking it now because what a vulnerable thing to reconnect with someone you had a kid with and then just wasn't, you know, you weren't in each other's lives for so long. That would be really tough to navigate. I would think for both of them, like that would probably be very strange. Like really Crosby could maybe be just as curious and we're just not seeing it as much. Maybe he's feeling insecure, but I don't know. It doesn't really come across that way. I did think the way he described her to Adam was also a little bit superficial. Earlier in the episode when he was weighing the pros and cons of going out with her at all. And he said, well, it's probably a good idea not to do this because, you know, I can't walk away from this one. But then he says, but, you know, she's very attractive. And I'm like, that's it? You know, like not she's smart and funny and all of these wonderful characteristics. She's very attractive and I'm only human. And I'm like, well, is that all it is? In that case, resist, because you're right. You can't walk away from this one. And maybe you don't get involved if it's just about her being pretty. Well, it just shows he, for me, that he's not where he needs to evolve yet, which is part of what is interesting to see if he does evolve. Yeah. Let's move on to Julia in this episode. My first observation was, I think that it is super uncool of Raquel to tell a child that what their parent does like inherently makes them a liar. Mm-hmm. Oh, your mom's a lawyer. They're all liars, sweetie. She's five years old. That That's not cool, Raquel. That's really overstepping. No. Plus, you know, it's derivative of the film Liar Liar. And so it's not even original. And your dad? He's a liar. <laughs> you mean he's a lawyer? <laughs> wow. Because it you is derivative. You guys go deep. You guys go yeah. deep. Well, thank you. Yeah, you know, no stone unturned. <laughs> Maybe next week it's Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Um, <laughs> no, it won't be. And I just thought uh, that <laughs> Julia's offense at being perceived as a dishonest person because of her profession was it was interesting to me, and I really felt for her. Um, there was also this talk largely around Christina picking an outfit, but Julia brings it up again. Ta-da! How do I look? <laughs> um, From the David Byrne collection. That is David Byrne. John Collins? Sybil Shepherds. Are you making fun of me? You're making fun of me, aren't you? Are you on Dynasty? You, I can't do it. It's like an episode of Hoarders. When's the last time you cleaned oh that closet? Oh, my God. Oh, you know what? My daughter has a better wardrobe than I do. Christina, let me find something. We'll help you. Oh, by She'll the way, you. guess who started buying bras? Oh. From Victoria's Secrets. You? Hetty. Uh-oh. Oh, it's yes. okay. Very sexy bras. How bad is it? What's the lace to base? The what? If it's really lacy, I mean, she's going further on the basey, you know? What are you talking about? She's not doing First any base of that. is kissing. Second base is... What is second There's base? There's a lot of lace, but she's not doing any of that. Okay, of second not. base is reading well, Tennyson. Okay, yeah. stop it. Okay, and, um, can I ask you guys something? When did your children start lying to you? Uh... It was in the hospital, I think. Amber was born, and she said, it wasn't my vodka. Really? <laughs> oh, Hattie was too. She swore to me that she did not stick a little bead up her nose. And the doctor pulled it out, and it's like, here's the bead. So this is normal. That's what kids do. Especially it's not something that I'm family. doing. Wait, what? Especially, you know. Why? She'd learn it from you. Why? Because you're a lawyer. 
They oh, lie. <laughs> Poor thing. Like, oh. I would be hurt, too. And while I get why that perception exists, I think lawyers probably spend more time than the average person actually considering whether or not what they're saying is true or not. Now, they're parsing it, perhaps, to such a degree that they can sometimes say, well, I technically was telling you <laughs> things that were true. That's a good point. And it, it probably hurts even more hearing that from her sister than it does from, you know, someone who told her daughter the that. Nemesis. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that leads to this little lesson she gives to Sydney. And do you know who wrote the Declaration of Independence? Mm, you? No, not me. Thomas Jefferson. Have you heard of him? No. Okay. Well, he was one of the founding fathers of this country. He was our third president. And do you know what else he was? Mm, no. He was a lawyer as was our second president, John Adams, and many of our presidents since then. This country was created by lawyers. So when Harmony's mom says that lawyers are liars, she's not just absolutely wrong, she's kind of insulting America itself. And we're Americans? We're Americans, that's right. And we're an honest people. So think about that, okay? Yeah. Okay, because telling the truth is very, very, very important. Okay. Fun fact, 25 of our presidents have been lawyers. That's wow. well over half. And two first ladies have been lawyers. I'm sure you can probably name I know, those. I but. know one. I'm trying to think who the other one was. Yeah, uh, Michelle Obama and... Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Hillary Clinton. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Yeah. Nice. Anyway, I thought Julia's insistence on leaving the vase broken until Sydney told the truth was actually very good. <laughs> and I admired her for sticking to it because I think that's the kind of thing that a parent might say, we're not cleaning that up until someone tells the truth about it. And then, you know, it stretches into day two or day three and they go, this is ridiculous. And then you just undermine the whole point of the lesson. I loved that she stuck with it. I love that she stuck with it too. And, you know, at the end, Julia asks, who is that person? I don't recognize her at all. A little bit of a, you know, joking kind of slight, but joking, you know, about how his wife is, you know, stubborn and tenacious. And, but I also liked it too. I really liked that she st stuck it out and um, went by what her word was. She was honest when she told her daughter, nobody's going to clean this up until they confess, you know? Yeah. And I think Sydney would learn a lesson about, because, you know, she didn't get punished uh, other than having to clean it up. Mm -hmm. But she learned that if you don't tell the truth, your messes don't just go away. Right. You have to clean them up. What inspired her to tell the truth? Because, you know, it... The guilt. <laughs> <laughs> just ate away to... at her. <laughs> it didn't seem to bother her that much at first. Like, Jabbar came over, and that wasn't enough of a incentive. Like, oh, there's this huge mess. You know, like, I, I wonder what did it. And for her to phrase it at the end, like... Fine. I did it. I broke the vase. Are you happy now? No, I'm not happy. You won, okay? You won. Sweetie, it's not about winning and losing. It's about being honest. You win. I lose. I'll go pick it up. Okay. Dad, where's the broom? Pantry. I was like, well, what is she really learning? You know, is she learning that if I made a mess, I have to clean it up? Or is she learning I'm always going to lose to my mom? because She's a lawyer and she's really good at this shit. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm curious what exactly that lesson ended up being. I know what it was supposed to be, but. I feel like you raise a valid point. 
<laughs> I was just curious. Don't you think she's testing boundaries? Oh, she, she knows that yeah. her mother knows. So I think it's a matter of testing boundaries and finally realizing, okay, I, this can go on for a long time and the boundary set, I cannot push past it as much as I want to. That's a good point. That's probably exactly what it is. Do either of you remember the first lie you told or like the first time you were aware of, I'm telling a lie right now. I vividly remember it. Really? Okay. I do. Yeah. Um, Please I share. Was- My mom needed to do some work in her room. um, And so she needed to not be bothered. But I really wanted to hang out with my mom. And so I my brother was watching me downstairs. My brother's 11 years older. And I needed to go upstairs for something. But really, I knew I wanted to see my mom. And my brother was like, don't forget, you can't see mom. And I remember it dawning on me. I was like, I can tell him one thing. And I can do something else. Wow. And so I said to him, okay, Pretty powerful I- realization for a 10 year old. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> okay. I was like, I was like five. Um, but I remember saying to him, okay, well, when you hear a door open and close, that's just me going to my room. <laughs> so, you know, it was a very good lie. Um, so I went upstairs and I went into mom's room and, you know, to my credit, she was very happy to see me. She put her books down and was like, yay. But then my brother came in and he was like, you lied. And then it occurred to me that that's what a lie was because I didn't connect that that was actually what lying was. I just thought I was being very clever. Um, so anyway. Wow, you have such a good memory. I don't remember <laughs> anything like that. Wow. Well, thank you. I don't know why I remember that, but I do. Do, do you remember, Caleb? I don't remember my first lie but I remember an early huge lie. Um, (laughs) When I was in second grade, there was a girl in my class who had family in India and she went to India and then she and her mom, I think were showing the class when they came back, things that they had brought back with them and just things about Indian culture that, you know, none of us knew anything about. So it was an educational sort of show and tell. And I was super jealous just because of all the attention she was getting. And so at some point that year, I told, I think the whole class, certainly my teacher, about all the places my family and I had been all around the world. And I remember, I mean, when I look back on it now, I remember I just, I didn't even know, I didn't know the first thing about most of the places I was saying we had gone. I just looked at the globe (laughs) <laughs> and was like, what countries have interesting names? Because I remember one of the places I said that we had gone was Chad. Just because <laughs> I thought, oh, how interesting that that country has the name of like a person. <laughs> and <been> uh, <laughs> wouldn't it be cool to go there? It's like, uh, I don't think a lot of Kansas families are vacationing in Chad. And um, <laughs> And then, or if I did know something... I would use like the one factoid I knew about a country. So I said we had gone to Australia and that the dingoes outside our hotel room kept us up at night because they were so loud. (laughs) Just because that was one thing I knew about Australia. There are dingoes there. The dingoes ate my baby. And then I can't imagine. I mean, at the time, I thought everyone believed it. (laughs) Now I look back on a particular memory, which was, Sometime, I mean, much later that year, the teacher was asking us about places we had gone or something. And she said, we all know Caleb's been some pretty 
amazing places. <laughs> and now I think of that as like, oh, that was so her just having fun on her own, calling me out on my lie without really calling me out. Yeah, I just can only imagine what she thought of me then. Like this little liar. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, if you'll indulge me, that made me think of my funniest lie, I think, which is when my dad and I used to go to the food court in Joplin, nearby town. Um, I would pretend to be triplets so that I could get a dish. <laughs> so that I could get. And so I could... Oh, my God. I don't even know why you pretended yet. I can't wait to hear. I would pretend to be triplets so that I could get extra free samples at the food court. (laughs) (laughs) And me pretending to be triplets just look like sometimes my hair would be down and sometimes it would be up and sometimes I would be wearing my dad's glasses and I would just call out the names of my sisters. Like pretending to be looking for them as I walked by whoever had the chicken. <laughs> oh my God. So oh my gosh. <laughs> wow, that's pretty creative. Yeah. No you got know. the samples? Yeah, because they didn't get they So didn't they believe. must have bought it. No. <laughs> <laughs> they knew I was just some crazy girl who wanted more chicken. <laughs> they they took pity on me. It's really nice. Aw. Well, I, you know, we've all referenced Sydney's confession at the end. I thought I, again, I took note, bravo to Savannah Page Ray. I, she really delivers it spectacularly, I think. I mean, that actor is what, five, six at the most? That's yeah. incredible that she, she gets this, her delivery. And I, as she's walking away, that like, all righty. <laughs> like that weary, <laughs> vanquished quality. It's just great. You know, I'm not a parent, but would you want your like five or six year old kid to clean up ceramic pieces of a vase? Like, I mean, I get that normally you teach them to clean up after themselves, but I'm like, isn't that just bloody stumps of arms just waiting to happen? Maybe. Although I think ceramic would be less risky than like glass. I'm sure that's true. But still, I'm just picturing this little child picking up all of these pieces. Hmm, I bet they'll help her. I don't know. Yeah, you're probably right. Well, maybe the scars will help her learn her lesson, too. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the the last sort of thread of uh, story, kind of two-pronged, is <laughs> <laughs> Adam and Christina and Hattie. I guess that's tri-pronged. But um, I loved at the beginning of the episode that when, when Christina mentioned this old friend of hers wanted some help over the weekend, that Adam was just immediately on board. There was no yeah. like, well, who's going to X, Y, and Z? It was just like, oh, great. Yeah, he's fantastic. <laughs> he is fantastic, right? That's pretty Oh, great. yeah. If I weren't married to the man I with, I want to be with Adam. I love him. <laughs> he's like super responsible. And yeah, I love him. He's great. They also discover that Hattie has ordered this bra. And um... <laughs> did you buy that bra for Steve? Mom, you know Steve doesn't have boobs. I'm not going to buy him a bra. You're ridiculous. Oh, that made me so mad. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I, I I thought you're just taking a page out of Max's book and being super <laughs> literal, you know? <laughs> it's really... Yeah, but I think if I were Christina, it would have pissed me off. Oh, As yeah. an audience member, I just laughed. But yeah, that's a good point. 
I was a little perturbed by Christina's reaction in that whole scene because, I mean, at first I was like, did that episode, What's Up, even happen? Because they're just right back to this really combative, what are you doing? I'm upset with you. You can't do anything with Steve thing. But then Christina revealed a more nuanced, like, yeah, your dad was going to burn the bra and I saved it because that would be ridiculous. I'm like, then why this fake out? Why didn't you just... I don't know. I'm glad that Christina then had a moment like the end of that What's Up episode where she and Hattie are much more reasonable than Adam is about Mm -hmm. the whole thing. And I noticed there's a slight trend. So that scene ends with Christina saying to Hattie, I trust you. That's good. You trust her. And then when she's saying goodbye before she goes away for work. Okay, listen, I want you to call me if anything comes up at all. I need you to help dad, Max, okay? I trust you. Okay. She says it again. It's the last thing she says to her. So she keeps reiterating, I trust you. Does that mean she trusts her or does that mean she absolutely does not trust her? I I wasn't sure. (laughs) I almost feel like it doesn't matter because even if she doesn't trust her, she's telling her that she does for Mm. a good reason, I think, which is I want you to make responsible choices. And if I tell you that I think you will make responsible choices, I expect you're more likely to make them than if I'm like, Hattie, I don't trust you at all. (laughs) That's not going to make her behave well. Yeah. To me, this whole Christina storyline was my favorite of the, of the four. And the one that I felt, I don't know why, because I haven't dealt with raising children, but I, when I saw all the things she was going through about trying to let her daughter grow up, trying to do something and relinquish control that I've definitely experienced a lot in my life and she's struggling and I, I really felt it deeply. And so I think she's trying to tell herself, I can relinquish control. My daughter is going to grow up and make her decisions. I'm going to leave and do this job and things may happen in the house that I don't like, but it's okay. And all that's really hard. I mean, you, I felt it jump off the screen. I mean, I could feel her struggle. Yeah. I think it's interesting, the dynamic between her and Adam, because she is so good at being a parent. Like, I think probably better than Adam is. Not that Adam's bad at it, but yeah, like like Caleb said, I think Christina's handling it so much better by saying, I trust you and, and, you know, all of that. But then this whole storyline where she gets to go and be a person, you know, and and she even says that she felt seen and she felt alive. I mean, honey, I I love our kids and I love you and I love being a mom. I love all of that. But honestly, when I was there, I felt so, I felt so alive and, and it was just amazing. It was like I was being seen for the first time in so long, you know? I got it. But I want you to know I see you. I know. I know you do. But you you see me in a different way. I know. Those are incredible words to use. Right. It means, you know, she hasn't felt that way in so long because she's right. maybe so good at being a parent. She's given up herself. She's given up everything. Right. And man, it made me so sad how quickly she gave up on that at the end. Mm-hmm. And Adam, it wasn't his fault because he was like... Yeah, we'll make it work. And I don't think he was using reverse psychology or something. I think he really was like, let's make it work. And maybe mothers out there who might be listening would just say, I don't understand because I'm not a mom. And they would say, no, Christina did the right thing because it dawned on her that, you know, as she says, her kids are only kids for so long and there will be another campaign, et cetera. 
But at the same time, I just thought this seemed like something Christina was passionate about. Is Adam passionate about selling shoes? Like, if if this could be a lucrative thing, they, they're already just a one salary household. I guess I just thought, why does Christina have to give everything up? And maybe Adam could learn to connect better with, with Hattie and, and trust her as well. You know, I, I don't know. I went to a weird place where I was like, Adam should quit his job and Christina should take this. I, I maybe went too far. I don't know that Christina would be happy giving up all that control of parenting. Hmm. I think that it would be really hard for her. And I agree with you that I don't think it was Adam holding her back at all. But I also think when he's talking about all the things they need to do to make it happen, she starts to see how hard it's going to be. It's like he's listing off, not purposefully, but all the hurdles they're going to have to go through as a family. We'll have to take care. Okay, well, we can do this, this, and this. I I felt so like my heart was breaking seeing her face just give up that dream. You know, that it really was... That was, to me, the hardest, uh, most emotional part of the episode for me was seeing her, watching her dream sort of fall away from her eyes, realizing I have the responsibility of these children. And she wasn't, nobody, obviously, between the two of them were thinking about Adam leaving his job. I don't know the reasons why they didn't, because you have a very valid point. Why aren't they thinking about her? But I I don't know that she could do it. I felt similar to you, Melissa, although not as extreme. It never occurred to me that Adam should quit his job. But I did take note that I wished he had pushed back a little harder against her, what seemed to me almost like knee-jerk reaction of, oh, wait, I actually can't, I can't do that. And he, and I I watched it again and he does push back. He's like, are you sure? Are you sure? I don't want you to, you know, regret this looking back. And it's like, okay, he's... He's saying it, and I guess he has to respect her choice if she says, forget what I said. It also made me wonder if it would have been wiser for him not to list those things right away. (laughs) Again, I don't think he had an agenda behind it. I think he was just thinking out loud. Yeah. But, you know, when she raises it, and if he said, okay, we'll figure it out, and then they just go to sleep, Mm -hmm. and then the next morning, you know, they discuss it a little more in depth rather than in that moment listing off all the obstacles it just feels immediately overwhelming. And if you had some time to reflect on it and think, okay, here's what we'll do. Cause all the stuff he mentions is really plausible stuff. Yeah. My mom will come over and we'll have groceries delivered and I'll work a little bit more from home and I'll come home early. And yeah, all that stuff sounds doable. It does. But Adam is very, this would rock him. He's not Mr. Easygoing. So this thinking (laughs) about his wife, who's been a stay-at-home parent, they now have a new diagnosis for their child at this point. I can imagine he feels really overwhelmed, but I think Adam would say, okay, I'm supposed to support her though. So (laughs) his mind would go to talking out these things. If he were a relaxed, like, sure, you know, no problem. I'm not overwhelmed at all. He wouldn't be listing off those things. But I think that's his way of like, yeah, 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 we can do it. Now we're we're just going to have to do the X, Y, and Z. And it's his way of trying to manage his own feelings of being overwhelmed, I think. Yeah. You know, at the same time, it's another storyline that does make me realize just how like privileged they are because- the fact that they are able to live in that huge house on one salary in the first place, you know, so many, I mean, most families I knew of like growing up, both parents worked, you know, and, and that's just how it was. And it's interesting. It's not like Max is a little, little kid. They're both in school, you know? And so that's an interesting thing that like, 
And they drive two Nissans. <laughs> <laughs> then they have the backup Nissan. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a that's an interesting thing to consider as well that this issue it wouldn't even be an issue for a lot of families because they'd already both have jobs and be pushed to their absolute limit, you know? And, and so I, th- I think that's, I did sort of similarly think a lot of the problems that would be raised by her going back to work, you could almost make go away by virtue of the fact that you would have a second income. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so it's like, don't ask your mom to come over, just hire someone to watch yeah. your kids all day, every day. When they're not in school. If you're affording all of this already with one income and then you add a full-time communications director. Yeah. And I think also something they didn't address, but, you know, if she was the communications director for the campaign, a campaign is temporary. Although there might be a presumption that if your candidate wins, you would then be their communication director in whatever office they hold. But, you know, if it's like, oh, this will be stressful for the remaining four months of the campaign then just be stressed for four months. Yeah. But if it's going to make Christina feel alive and seen, I don't know. Her giving it up did come from a very good place. It's not that I judge her for prioritizing her family. It was just, like you said, Shuli, it was hard to watch her face fall when she had to give that up. And I think part of the reason why she does, a big part is because of Max. I think if she didn't have a new diagnosis that she's just grappling with and trying to figure out what does this mean, then she might have taken the job and they, they yeah. might, but cause I don't think Hattie's so much that Hattie's changing, but it's, I think it's, I think it's more max. You're so right. I think that's absolutely it. I, I don't know what it was inside of me that that whole, yeah, alive and seen. I just felt wretched that she just gave it up so fast, not even revisiting it later. And to, to give it up and say there will be other campaigns, but they're only kids for so long. That's only halfway true. They will only be kids for so long. But who's to say there will be other campaigns that she could work on? It's And not- to be full-time communications director, like, you know, one thing they do point out is that she's she's been out of the game for a long for a time. While, and she's a little bit out of date with just some of her methods. She's obviously still really good at her actual job. Yeah. But there was like a bit of a learning curve. And it does make you wonder, is someone going to offer you a high position like that? when they aren't your friend who already can trust you? That's what I was thinking. Like, to just say, oh, another opportunity will come along. I don't know that that's... Yeah, I mean, I hope so. And I don't mean to make it sound like, you know, it's now or never. But sometimes in life, these opportunities come and they really are kind of special opportunities. And it doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be another. And so... Just the fact that it wasn't a longer conversation, it just broke my heart. And, you know, it made me think that as progressive as Adam and Christina can be, in in some ways they are quite traditional. I mean, the whole, to, to bring it back to Hattie and, and Adam's reaction, maybe other parents would see it in a similar way. But I just thought, well, that's what teenagers do. They, they mess around a little. They make out. You, you hope you raise them well, but... You can't just go over to their house and like drag them out. I don't know. That was just me. But maybe other people are like, she should not have been alone in a room with a boy with the door closed at Adam and Christina's house. The door always had to be open. You know, like maybe they would push back on that and say, um, no, this was against what Adam and Christina would want. But I just think, 
I don't know, man, like they're going to do what they're going to, you got to, you got to kind of let them go a little bit, let them grow up. And it was a double standard that he drove Drew all the way to that dance and then wouldn't let, yeah, I hated that. And I didn't feel really any better when he was like, yeah, you're right. It's a double standard. I'm like, is it better that you admit it? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, that that really, it bothered me. It fit with their personalities though. I mean, when you think about Christina and Adam, like I said, and I can relate to it because I'm like this, I'm a control freak. You know, it's like, they don't want things to change. A new diagnosis is different than what they, they planned on. And so I think having their daughter change and grow is more challenging to them in some ways because they have to adapt to different stuff. It's scary. Yeah. I thought I wrote down it's crazy how on Hattie's side I am. <laughs> yeah, I just, me too. I thought his reaction, well, him dragging her out of Steve's house. She had said it was kind of overlapping dialogue, but earlier in the episode, you can hear her tell Adam, Steve's parents will be there. You know, she flat out says, We're we're not gonna be unaccompanied. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, we might be in the room with the door closed, but <laughs> That I think that's really different than we're in the house alone. Right. Mm-hmm. And him going over there, that it's irrational, I think. And I think it's humiliating yes. to Hattie. And his big bust proved that they were just making out fully clothed. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe it would have gone somewhere else, but it's not like they're behaving incredibly irresponsibly. Yes, they need boundaries, but I I think Christina had kind of already established them with Hattie, and she trusted her. And I think Hattie took that seriously. The only slight exception I had is that I agree with Adam that if your parent tells you to do something, you should do it. And yeah, they have that like ridiculous but very authentically teenage argument. Like, if you tell me to burn down a house, I have to do it. (laughs) If you tell me to murder someone, I have to murder someone. (laughs) Yeah. But then Hattie takes a beat, is more mature about it, And I thought she laid out her position really calmly, really clearly. And I agree. I thought Adam's double standard explanation was incredibly insufficient. And I put, I think it's actually the worst light we've seen him portrayed in thus far. And I thought it was the most believable screw up that he would have while at home for a weekend without Christina. Mm. Cause like, I kind of hate the cliche of like, the guy that cannot take care of himself or the household while the wife's away. I think Adam would be able to cook something. I don't know that you have to leave a meatloaf for him (laughs) and remind him how to heat it up Yeah, and that he would be so inept. It's like, he's like super dad, but where I think, yeah, he really would be inept is managing Hattie. And I think at the end of the episode, he's just wrong and remains wrong. And it is interesting because I know we've talked about this before and and there probably are some differences in raising boys and girls. I've given the example before of like Mark would not think twice, my husband, you know, walking alone at night and I would. But I, I think this isn't about safety. This is about that weird controlling someone's body thing. You know, like like I don't think having met Steve, I don't you know, I don't think that Adam is actually afraid that she's with some dangerous person or a violent person. I think it's about control. And that's why I think it sucks because it's not about really her safety. It's about her like innocence. And the show does have kind of a 
a spin there, you know, like, like we've got a grandfather who in previous episodes, Zeke has told Drew that we're a family with, you know, a proud libido or something like that, you know? And, but, but what he says to, to Amber's boyfriend, Damien is, you know, you took my daughter, my granddaughter's innocence. That's not great. Is it, you know, to, to portray it like, you know, men go to the school dance, ask the, ask the girl out, you know, we, we are, virile and we are men we have the moves in us as adam tells drew but you know women no we gotta we gotta make sure that you're protected we gotta make sure that no one's taking advantage and i just think at some point that crosses over that's not just being fatherly and caring that's that's ugh. <laughs> i just hate it and i agree about the double standard i i think sometimes double standards are fine because there are two things. Yeah. But this one bothered me. And also, I mean, to be super specific about it, she shrewdly points out you would drive Drew to be with his girlfriend. And, you know, what's what's Adam's opinion of this girl that Drew is going to be seeing? Never met her. You know, she's someone's daughter, too. And, you know, I think we understand Adam well enough to know that there are a lot of good intentions behind his support of Drew. He knows Drew feels very out of place at this new school and maybe doesn't have a lot of friends. And that is all decent and kind of him. But also, as Hattie points out, it's very decent and kind of her to stay and watch Max for that like extra hour. Mm-hmm. And she did it because Adam said, be supportive of your cousin. So, you know, she was already being flexible. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I was like, I am 99.9% on Hattie's side. <laughs> and one per, and 0.01% of <laughs> if your father says stay home, you have to do what your father says. Yeah. But he was being totally unreasonable. That is a good point, though. Shuli, did you have any thoughts on her just like kind of running out of the house, even though Adam said not to? Like, did you think that was okay of her to do since... Her mom had already given permission for her to do it, but her dad was telling her no. I wouldn't have done it, but I can understand her doing it. And I also was 100% on Hattie's side by the end of the episode in terms of it being ridiculous and her father was being ridiculous. It was embarrassing for her. Oh my God, can you imagine at that age? Oh my God. Awful. And at the same time, even though I'm not saying it's okay, I get why Adam was doing it. I get this. I have been at the place of feeling like life is out of my control and I'm trying to do anything, even though it's crazy irrational to get (laughs) it back in control. And so I can imagine this is not just about Hattie changing and growing up, but it's probably about Max too. And just, and Christina's not there and just like, ah, and so I think he just went a little nutty with feeling like I just got to manage all this. Yeah. So I don't agree with what he did, but I felt like I, I understood it. It just went to a whole different level. And, you know, hearing you say that makes me feel like a little devil's advocate with myself. Because <laughs> to compare Adam's situation to Julia's, you know, I admire Julia for laying down a rule with her daughter and sticking with it. Adam said, you're not going. And then she just walked out. And if he didn't go get her, huh. the lesson might be, I tell you what to do, you openly define me, and then you suffer no consequences. That's not a good lesson. And yet it is so humiliating and unreasonable for him to then go drag her out of there, even though the lesson is when I tell you to do something, you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. 
I guess he was he was changing a rule that Christina had already right. set. And maybe right. he and Christina needed to have coordinated on that better. Right. Yeah. Well, and I also think you have to look at the punishment, you know, like, is it something that shames your kid? Because what happened with Julia and Sydney was in the privacy of their home. And it might have been a little embarrassing when Jabbar came over, but that was in their home. Um, I, I don't know. I There's like a trend. Oh, I'm going to sound so terrible again. I shouldn't criticize parents because I'm not a parent, but I don't like this trend of like taking a picture of a kid who's like throwing a fit and like posting it on social media and then captioning it like throwing a fit because I wouldn't let her fill in the blank, you know, and and the idea is let's shame the kid. I'm obviously the reasonable one, but I'm like, your kid is four and in her emotions and like this is not an appropriate consequence. Like, Right. public humiliation. And so I feel like with Sydney, that was maybe an appropriate consequence where it was inconvenient and they had to work around it, but it was in their house. And I think that Adam could have given Hattie a talk when she came home and they could have talked about that, but like going out into Steve's house, that is shaming your kid. And I don't think that that is ever going to lead any place good. So like that might be a weird comparison, but I do think that like shaming is kind of a consequence that some parents rely on. I don't think it's a very compassionate one. I don't think I wouldn't do that to like a student. That's the only way I can relate. I wouldn't go out of my way to embarrass someone's feelings. So yeah. And I don't know that Adam, um, you know, not in that state, if he had time to think about it, would actually agree that it's anything. I mean, it wasn't good. They were, I don't know that anybody out there is going to be like, that was a good thing. He went to the boyfriend's <laughs> house and got her out of the bedroom. I mean, it was good for him. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't even think that he would think it was good, but I agree with you. He's yeah. just entrenched and freaked out. That's true. He's not thinking rationally. He is, he is straight up in his emotions. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. a good point. Well, I found the title of this episode, Perchance to Dream, which for any listeners who don't know, is a reference to Hamlet's soliloquy, to be or not to be, the very famous soliloquy. Titling this episode that was a bit of a head scratcher to me. I suppose the concept of dreaming, like as an aspirational, go for it kind of thing, Mm. happened in this episode with Christina going for the job and Drew going for the girl Amber and Sarah kind of going for college or whatever their greater ambitions are. Crosby going for a relationship with Jasmine. But the Julia and Hattie storylines don't have any of those elements at all. Any thoughts on why they might have had perchance to dream? Well, Drew definitely. Did you name Drew? Yeah. Um, Hmm. Hattie and Julia. I guess Hattie dreams of a day in which she can just make out with Steve for half an hour. <laughs> I did notice she says, I'll be back at 1130. It's like, she's not even like going out all night. That is a very reasonable curfew. She's keeping her curfew. Uh, well, and, and Julia maybe just dreams of being respected by her daughter. Or of a world in which lawyers aren't. Although Julia, I know I was all like, you know, playing the world's <laughs> smallest violin for Julia. Doesn't all the money help? Doesn't that help your hurt feelings a little bit? Everyone thinks I'm a liar, but I can just soundproof my walls and keep all those comments out. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point. Anyway. I love it. Maybe Hattie is dreaming of a time when she is really trusted and Mm. can be responsible for her own life without her parents questioning everything. That's good. That's a hard time in life. Mm. Like 
Yeah, I work with with teenagers and and they feel like adults. You know, I I don't talk to them any differently than I talk to people my age. You know, I mean, I'm appropriate. So I guess it's slightly differently. I don't curse or something. But you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm not talking using smaller words so that they'll understand me. I, 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 they're people that they're, they're they're so close to being adults with all the rights and privileges that that affords them. But they're not quite there, are they? And they, you know, they do have to listen to their parents and authority figures and they can't just go live on their own. And that, that is a really tough spot in life. You're just desperate for independence. Right. Desperate and I think for it. that age is probably different than other ages in that that's when you think you know more than you really know. <laughs> I mean, other times like now, I know a lot about what I don't know. <laughs> I'm very, very aware <laughs> of it now. And I'm not saying all teenagers are like that, but a lot of them do think that they know a lot more than they actually know. And so it's hard because they want more responsibility and independence and not some of them are ready for it, but a lot of them aren't. They don't realize what it means to, for example, have sex. I mean, Mm, they think, yeah, "Yeah, I'm, you know, yeah, I know I could get pregnant, but if you actually get pregnant, I mean, it changes the rest of your life. And that is really hard to grasp, I think, at that age. Yeah. It's funny that, that it does make me think a little bit about my own parents. One thing I know about their parenting philosophy was that the authority of the parent they took very seriously as something that needed to be taught to children young. And so like the idea of a 15-year-old being told you're not leaving this house and then just turning around and walking out, neither me or my sisters would ever dream of doing that. Not in a million years. And I know if I were to ask either of my parents, you know, parenting wise, what went wrong there? You know, he's saying, he's telling her to do something and she's not listening to him. And they would say, it's too late. It's too late for her to learn that lesson. Mm. And I would say, you know, when do you start learning that lesson? And they would basically say birth. (laughs) It's never too early. And they said, you have to learn it then so that when you're 15, stuff like that doesn't happen. And I, I think, at least in our case, it worked out that way because we had learned when we were 15, we had learned long ago, if our parents are telling us to do something, we have to do it. And there's also trust and respect in that. It wasn't that we wouldn't do that because there was some threat of punishment. It was because it had been just authority established and kind authority that was looking out for us. If there was some reason they were telling us to do something, we trusted that it was a good reason. Right. I'm realizing that I think I had a slightly different, my my mom had a slightly different parenting approach. And I say my mom and not my parents because my dad had, you know, two major strokes when I was six. So then it kind of went to my mom for the most part. And my dad usually just kind of backed her up. But something I think my mom did beautifully was she explained everything. And I know that some people think, you know, because I said so should be enough, but I love that it wasn't enough for my mom. So I don't know that I did just trust authority to tell me what to do. And then I just did it and trusted that they had good reasons. I liked knowing the reasons. And for the the real example that's coming into my mind is that um, we grew up really poor. You know, my dad's strokes. He had those two weeks after he got his PhD. He was supposed to be making a lot of money. And instead, then we had his hospital bills and his his um, the bills from his degree. So we were poor. And I remember if I would ask my mom if I could have something, she didn't just say no. She would say 
I really wish you could. I would love for you to have that. We can't afford it. And then that meant so much more to me than her just saying no. So I never like pushed. I really have no memory of throwing fits in stores. I respected that. I, I felt like I can't argue with that. We, you know, if we're struggling, I can't, you know, it just, it logically made sense to me. So I think maybe that also is part of why I'm relating to Hattie because Adam is not logically making sense to her. So even though he's just telling her something, I think she's more on, but this isn't, you know, this isn't right. And so I think that if my mom had said something that wasn't right, I think I maybe would have pushed back like Hattie did, because I think for me, it's, I, I want to know why. That's how I teach. Actually. I want my, I don't want to just assign a lot of dumb, busy work that I don't think is important. I want to give meaningful assignments. You know, if, if somebody asks me, why are we doing this? I want to be able to tell them and not just say, cause I said so. Uh, so I don't know. Not that that's what you were saying, Caleb. I don't think it is, but you know what I mean? It's like a slightly different philosophy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think my I, my my parents' parenting style was probably closer to Caleb's, but I also think, and I don't know if this is true for you, Caleb, that they they had definitely established very early on. You know, you follow the rules. You know, and we did. My sister and I were really really good daughters. <laughs> we followed <laughs> rules. We didn't cause trouble. We weren't rebels. But I also think that my parents never, and this is the part that I bet you'll agree with, Caleb. They never did anything like what Adam did that night. They never True. did. Any, they the decisions that they made, there's nothing that I look back on. There's one decision that they made, and I was talking to my husband about it tonight, was which they, I walked, uh, my boyfriend at the time, I walked him down a few blocks. We lived in a very tiny town, 4,000, super safe. But I walked him, you know, late at night, halfway down the street from where he, between our houses, which is probably like four blocks, and then walked back alone. You know, we split up, he went on, I came back home, and they were really upset. It was late at night, in the dark, they said, we never want you to do that again. And they, they punished me for it. They um, grounded me. It's the only time they grounded me. And I, wow. at the time I was thinking, I'm like, I'm not going to do it again. Like you guys know me. Like I'm going to fall. Like once you tell me that you don't have to tell me that twice. And they grounded me and to this day. I don't know why, because I wasn't going to do it again. But at any rate, other than that, like any decision, they never went, they never did an atom on me where they did something just wildly like said no to something and was just, they were just never out of line. They made, even that was a very sound, not the punishment, but telling me, I don't want you to do this. I got it. I was old enough to get it and I trusted them. I guess it's that trust that's so key. Like Christina kept reiterating, because I think the upside like of my relationship with my parents was that. You know, like, for instance, Hattie says, I'll be home at 1130. Like, that's her curfew. I never had a curfew, ever. Because it was whatever I was out for, we would just discuss. What are you doing tonight? And I would tell them. And it was, when do you think you'll be back? And I would tell them. And I'm sure if I said something, you know, crazy, unreasonable, <laughs> they might have said, that seems really late or something. <laughs> but they never did. It was just like, it was sort of like we had long ago come to an understanding of like, I'm going to defer to your judgment ultimately, and you're going to give me some room to be my own person. Well, and that's true for my parents. And I guess that's trust. And yeah, we yeah. were never grounded either. And not because we were saints, yeah. although we were generally well-behaved, but it just didn't operate that way. It was like, if you do something wrong, we'll figure out what the appropriate punishment is. But it's not like, oh, penal code of our parenting style <laughs> says this is a three-week grounding. It just wasn't that way. Yeah. And my parents, I definitely had a curfew, but when she started talking, I realized it was sort of similar where it was like, 
the default was whatever it was, maybe 1230 when I was a teenager or something. But if I ever said, hey, can I stay out later because of that, this, they never said no. It was always flexible if we talked about it, but the default was a certain time just to have one. So they weren't that different from your parents. It would be interesting to know, you know, I have two older sisters. I'm definitely aware that some dynamics changed with the youngest kid. (laughs) And I think that's just from, you know, parents learn. Or maybe they get lazy or maybe they get tired. (laughs) tired. But I think I certainly got away with more. (laughs) One thing I know for sure, like I got to go away for spring break my junior year of high school. I went with some friends to Chicago. And I remember my sister saying then, they would never have let us do that. (laughs) And I think they were right. And how much of that is because I was the youngest? How much of it is because I was the only boy? Who knows? I'm 11 years younger and my my parents were much looser with my brother, I think, because he was a boy. So maybe that's another reason that I uh, related to Hattie because I'm like... (laughs) 11 years later, you're stricter. Um, There's something. (laughs) Or I also wonder, like me and my oldest sister, we had similar social circles. Like we were in bands. We had like our band friends or like theater friends or kind of the, for lack of a better word, geeks of the school. (laughs) My middle sister hung out with athletes. She was a jock. She didn't embody any of the negative stereotypes of high school jocks. But I wonder if my parents thought about her going out with her friends Mm. differently. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't I don't know of any instances like that, but I might not know about them (laughs) because they didn't happen to me. Yeah, that is that is true. I got to say, once um, my husband and I were talking about our (laughs) our experiences after prom, like at our respective proms in high school. (laughs) And um, I was talking to him about mine and I was like, well, I was allowed to stay out all night, but everyone wanted to come back to my house. So um, I was just at my house. Um, At a certain point, we decided to put in a movie and somebody suggested Aladdin. So we were watching Aladdin. And then my mom (laughs) came down with cookies and milk. And Mark was like, so your after prom party was watching a Disney movie and having milk and cookies. And I was like, although listeners, Melissa's mom's cookies are not like (laughs) any cookies you've ever had. They are the best cookies in the world. They are the the oatmeal kind, Melissa. They were, they were oatmeal chocolate chip. She makes these oatmeal chocolate chip that are, bonkers they They are are so good that is the best after party (laughs) one could ever have it was great i have no regrets but it was funny because then i said to to mark i was like well what did what did you do after prom and he was like got drunk and had sex like every other teenager in america (laughs) (laughs) i hope he doesn't mind that i said that maybe i shouldn't have said that but it's the best story (laughs) we didn't say with who that's right it's fine <laughs> but yeah i did but sometimes but I if do... it was you call into the podcast <laughs> and you'll get a prize <laughs> i'll edit that out or you won't i don't know that's so good but i do have but to what say if some... they do it and we don't have a prize oh no <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i just think sometimes it's funny to think of my perspective on these shows and, and Caleb's too. Cause like this, again, it's good to have guests. Cause sometimes I'm like, we, we're both like band kids and we're like, yeah, we were good with our, you know, parents and uh, who knows? I don't know. Yeah. I'm probably more like you. Cause I was very, <laughs> I, I, well, I was very I'm really worried about this clarinet. <laughs> you know? yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh. So. Well, that'll do it for this episode. 
You could like us on Facebook at Parenthood Pals. Uh, we're also Parenthood Pals to follow on Instagram and Twitter. That You could twit at us, as Christina said. <laughs> Back when Twitter was only 140 characters. Ooh, what is it now? I'm like literally never on 280? Twitter. 280? Did it double? <gasps> I think so, yeah. I think, I think it doubled. Yeah. It also, I wondered, I actually looked up, I was like, would she be so ignorant of Twitter? Because it was 2010. So Twitter was young, but Twitter is headquartered in San Francisco. So I think she probably would have heard of it. Yeah. She's not a dummy, but anyway. Whatever. Wouldn't it be better to pull from a politician's position papers than their tweets? Yes. I think that was just What's happening to the world? (laughs) You can also find us at (laughs) parenthoodhouse.com. And Shuli, do you have anything that you would like to plug while you're here? Well, uh, my website is shulikaywood.com, which is S-H-U-L-Y-C-A-W-O-O-D.com. And you can find my blog and my books and everything there. Uh, And I have read... Shuli's memoir and also her collection of short stories and actually her forthcoming poetry book. I've read it all. And um, she's just beautiful. Just a beautiful writer. So you should really check her out. That's exciting. I will check it out. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed talking to both of you and going through this parenthood episode. Thank you. It was our pleasure. It was a lot of fun. This was a good one. Thank you so much. And... Thanks to all of you for listening. Until next time, may God bless and keep you always. And may your wishes all come true. Hi, friend. I'm back. Hi. <laughs> I, um, I, I won't share this on the podcast, but... In the um, in that scene with Adam and Crosby, where he just recover? the yeah, yeah, it does in time. So Christina is that remind Adam's reaction reminded me of Sherry O'Terry as Judge Judy. Maybe you maybe you do put it in. See if it fits. Uh-huh.